Join me in prayer. Father, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God, your Word. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would go before me, behind me, beside me. Lord, that you take each word spoken and let it be anointed by you because it's your message, not mine. Pierce us, as we say often here, let the word wound us and heal us at the same time this morning. Our desire, Lord, is to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we are completely insufficient for the task unless you do a work in us. Father, I want to thank you for, I said it publicly, but I just want to thank you for touching Jeremy and the whole Ives family. I want to thank you for your touch on Beverly uh, this week in a special way. Thank you for your touch on my daughter who was sick this week and for so many other lives in the room for Christy who has uh, recovered in recent days and Lord, there are health issues and many requests to be known, but just a moment to say thank you. We come and ask for a lot, and you are the God who answers, and we're grateful. We bless you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter number six. You will notice that it's uncommon for us to skip a passage, and you're like, Pastor, I hear you saying that, but you just skipped a big old passage, like the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer for those of us Bible nerds, like how, how did you skip that? That's a pretty important thing. Well, I'm coming to that next week, okay? So we're going to talk about that next week, but Jesus is dealing with hypocrisy here, and so I want to handle that where he deals with it in these three incredible areas. Before I get to that, I watched a um, clip recently, video clip, um, which is... I'm prone to do. You ever go down the rabbit trail? You see a clip. You go, oh, that's funny. And then you look, and for 20 minutes, you've been watching the, the next, or is that just me? Okay, y'all pray for your pastor. But I, I saw this clip. It was a uh, soccer, and it was obviously not uh, domestic because the crowds were going wild, right? It's international. And, and everybody's just all in. Everybody's having a great time. And this, uh, this kick is made from about the center of the field toward the goal to the left of the goal. Everybody's there. This and it's this yellow team. That's the extent of my sports knowledge. You, sh you know this by now, congregation. There was a ball. I'm good with that. I did say soccer or football if you're from everywhere else. So the, the ball's kicked from about center field to the to, uh, right near the goal to the left of the goal. And then this cat just comes out of nowhere. A, not literal cat, Peskers, an actual guy, right? The red team then, pow, just like that, and scores the crowd goes wild and then everybody's zooming in and the commentators are saying something in another language I don't have the gift of interpretation so I didn't know but here's what I discerned the guy that kicked it in you notice wait he's wearing the right colors and dressed the right way but there's no numbers on him it appears a fan got on the field comes in and scores my question to you is, everybody goes wild, the players go and pile on him, and that's what it appeared to happen. Did the goal count? No, of course not, that's interference, it doesn't count. So he looked the part, everybody celebrated, everything went great. I mean, a point was made, 
but it didn't count. That's the warning of our Lord today. We can go through all of the motions of what looks like a devoted Christian discipline and we get the applause of men and that's it. That's where it stops. There's no eternal reward or fruit that comes from that. Now, I titled the sermon this morning Authentic Christianity, which might seem a bit audacious since we're just dealing with three categories of discipline here, but here's the reality. I think if you can, or if you're comfortable faking or pretending in the area of giving, praying, and fasting, that's not what authentic Christianity looks like. Jesus wants us to be the real thing. But I did have some other sermon title options. I've done this to you a couple times in case you'd like to hear them. One was, are you a poser or a praiser? No? Then, okay. Um, how about poisoned piety? Yes? No? No. And then this one, which I know will probably add a bullet to the elders meeting today, be the real deal with all the feels when you give fast and kneel. No? Okay, sorry. As we finished up last week in Matthew chapter number five, Jesus lays down this kind of, I mean, atomic bomb when he says at the end of that chapter, be perfect <laughs> as your heavenly father is perfect. He's dealt with these moral expressions of righteousness and he's calling us to this breathtaking description of morality, calling us to maturity and perfection. We're, we're actually to love, the Bible says, because God is love in 1 John 4. We're to be holy because the Lord our God is holy. In Leviticus, in the New Testament, Paul says, without holiness, no man can see God. And here we see Jesus saying, be perfect as my Father is perfect. That's a tall order. That's an impossible order if left to our own strength. And it's a really big deal. And the temptation with such a tall order works like this. We start putting on a show. Why? Because everybody's watching us live this thing called life. And right now, we want to live stream every single moment of our lives. I checked, I know that some of you really enjoyed the demotivational poster that I put up last week on the screen. Um, I checked to see if there was one on hypocrisy. There was, I don't have the image, but here was the tagline you might enjoy. Hypocrisy, because what might be right for you may not be right for some. Ouch. A modern songwriter said, we hold others to a standard that we refuse to keep. Hypocrites. Now that word hypocrite comes from this word, it sounds just like it almost, but it, what it meant was these stage actors in that day and they were famous for pretending. They wanted to be celebrities and adored by the masses. You know, that's completely distinct now. Our actors today don't have those kind of aspirations at all. Like there's no like Academy Awards or anything that would celebrate great pretenders. Anyway. Uh, these ancient play actors were like living for the thrill of standing ovations and prizes and they loved it when they would give their dramatic performances and they were the talk of the town. Jesus uses that word to say don't do that when it comes to your disciplines. Don't be like play actors who pretend to have something you don't really have. How do you know you're doing that? When your goal is the applause of those around you. 
Let's look back at the text in Matthew 6, 1, first verse. I'll put it on the screen for you. What does Jesus actually say here? I want you to notice the first word. Now, take a breath, right? Did everybody enjoy the fact that we've reset our clocks? Great. I'm going to take the extra hour with the sermon. Is that okay with you? Awesome. We're going to do each word, old school expository. Just kidding. Beware. Beware, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father which is in heaven. That word, beware, you may have a translation in your hand that says take heed or be careful or take care. It's all the same thing. This is serious. This is not, hey, you know, I thought of a way to upgrade your spiritual life and your experience. Jesus never taught like that. He draws the line in the sand and says, stop this, beware of this. He's after not just fruit, he's after, say it congregation, the root, the root. He's dealt with that with the moral righteousness in the previous chapter and now we come to him dealing with the spiritual righteousness that he requires. He's interested in the heart and the act and he says, stop, beware, don't cross this line. I've got four headers. There's really one major theme to the whole passage. That's point one and then point two, three, and four are the illustrations. So it's not the greatest homiletical masterpiece this morning, but they're hooks that help me remember as I navigated the text. Point number one, choose your audience carefully. Choose your audience carefully. Note the two audiences that Christ presents us as the option. You can do this before others to be seen by them, or you can do this before your Father in heaven. More than one songwriter has coined that phrase, to my audience of one. You see it in verse one. He's gonna play these out and show us how this plays out in three pillars of Jewish life. I mentioned that in giving, praying, and fasting. But if you navigate the text or think back on what Jeremy read or with your Bibles open in front of you, which is what I prefer, maybe you have it on the app. By the way, if you have the Bible app, the YouVersion app, the sermon notes, there's a link right to them. You can get to them that way but it's right there in the text. Look, at, look with me at verse one. What does he say? Here's some things why he says your audience is important. In verse one, he says, you'll get no reward from your father if you choose the wrong audience. In verse two, if you choose the wrong audience, you receive payment in full here on earth, not from in heaven. In verse five, if you uh, do it to be seen, then you receive your reward. Now that's important because he's talking about prayer. So your prayer doesn't get answered, it gets applause. What do you need? When my daughter was sick this week, I didn't need my prayers to be applauded. I needed an answer. Jeremy, when you were sick over the last couple weeks, I wasn't praying to get attention from anybody. I was asking God to move on your life. Finally, in verse 16, if we make a show of fasting, we get our reward when people go, oh, how spiritual you are. You're like a unicorn riding on a rainbow, a fasting, a fasting evangelical. Who would have heard, right? But when we perform for others and get the applause, that's it. It's over. 
It's a significant trade-off, isn't it? In fact, here's what's happening. We're lowering our standard of righteousness. We are lowering our standard and we're lowering our motivation to that of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Now, we think of Pharisees and we always see them looking down their noses at everybody else holding them to a standard they didn't keep. But here Jesus is saying, no, the Pharisees are at the bottom of the rung when it comes to an authentic heart for worship here. They've got to look up at you if you're doing this correctly with a heart that's mine, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I don't want to lower my standards this morning. Jesus is interested in the fruit. He's calling us to give, to pray, and to fast. I'll get to that in just a minute. But he's calling us to have a heart that's all in. He's not just going to settle. And I know how we are as the Western church. I'm keenly aware this morning by the data and by feedback anecdotally that our services make it all over the world. We get feedback from different countries even at times. So I'm keenly aware of that, but I'm speaking to a Western audience predominantly in the church congregation this morning. This get her done mentality that we have as Americans. We're like, what do you care as long as the job gets done? Right? Does it really matter as long as I give? Does it really matter as long as I pray? Does it really matter if I'm one of those weird fasting Christians? I mean, as long as I'm doing it, what do you care? Well, that same thinking gets us church leaders who say it really doesn't matter as long as the church is growing. Or, or my personal life is just that. It doesn't matter as long as there's no scandal publicly. Or what does it matter as long as we're healthy financially. And then we see the roadway littered with many a fallen leader and we're going, how could they fail? Look at all the fruit. But the root was rotten. It matters. It matters to God. It matters to the kingdom of God. It matters to your local church. It matters for more than just the preacher or the elder or the staff member or the teacher. It matters for all of us. Jesus says, beware, take heed. Don't do these things this way. I've come to make you new, not make you good at doing religious looking things. But wait, pastor. A couple of weeks ago, you said we were the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and you said, actually the scripture says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Reconcile that for us, pastor. How do I do that and not do the other? Here's the deal. People are watching you live life. Have you tried to shut it off? Have you tried getting off the grid? <laughs> good luck with that, right? But if you got off the grid... As you walk and conduct your life in the marketplace, at home, your family, people are watching you live this thing called life. And as you live for Jesus, you live in a way that shows the hope and the life and the love that are in Christ and the conviction that his word is settled, this is the absolute truth and you're not swayed by every wind of doctrine. You know that culture and um, social society and all that's going on around you is a terrible expositor. They don't set the tone for your life. Your face is set like a flint toward the king and people see you live that way and they are drawn to engage and say, why do you do this? 
There's you living so your light can shine. That's different than I'm going to pray now. I'm going to pray now. Come and listen to a real prayer, right? I'm nauseous even pretending that. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at the end of the phrase in verse 1. I'm not putting it on the screen. Look back in your text, Matthew 6, 1. He says, beware practicing your righteousness before other people. Here's what I would underline if I were you in your Bible. In order to be seen by them. What's the difference? The motivation. The difference is the motivation. Motive. Choose your audience carefully. There are real consequences to getting it wrong. Let's look at the three pillars quickly this morning that Jesus gives us an example of. Number, the first pillar, but it's number two in your notes, right? Give. Give without getting noticed. Give without getting noticed. I don't know what your um, church experience has been in your life. I've had many. I could probably fill up a couple of chapters of different types of worship services that I have been in, participated in, and uh, been exposed to. All of us probably could if we've been to church for any length of time. But I've seen where some have had folks bring their offering up to the altar. And that's not uncommon. I don't have any problem with that necessarily. But I have seen some that were pretty excited that everybody saw them bring their offering up to the altar. You think? Right. Now there's a caricature of this. That's actually, Jesus is talking about giving to the needy. We're gonna look at the passage here. He's talking about giving to the needy, but he's talking about doing it in a way that draws the attention of everybody around us. Any trumpet players in the room this morning? You may not be a current trumpet player, recovering trumpet players in the room this morning. Nobody, I see one, I see that hand, I see that hand. I played in middle school and got switched to sousaphone and tuba, Napoleon complex in high school, right? So there you go, trumpet players. These Pharisees had these silver trumpets that they carried with them, right? I'm asking for a Christmas gift for your pastor here, a little silver, no, I'm kidding. But they had these silver trumpets here. Look at the text here, verse, chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. And when you give to the needy, this is different than giving an offering at the synagogue or at church. It's not what he's talking about. The principle, I think, holds. But let's just deal with this benevolent gift. I don't need to talk about giving and your faithfulness to the Lord here. We're talking about giving to the needy. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites. Man, he just did not pull any punches here. He knew exactly who he was talking about. Everybody around him knew he was talking about the Pharisees. This is pretty amazing. Do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Um, I mentioned to you it's not giving and offerings. This is personal, benevolent, generous acts of mercy toward those who are in need. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, being ready to give to those who are in need. It's assumed, by the way, that all three of these practices are regular practice. Jesus never said if you give or if you pray or if you fast. He says when, when you do this. When, we don't often do this little move here, but it feels right. Look at your neighbor and say, when. This, that's proof it's a Bible church. Nobody did that. That's great. But uh, when you pray, when you give, when you fast, he's saying when you do this. You know the expression, don't toot your own horn? 
I couldn't find a uh, sermon title with toots in it that felt appropriate, so I didn't do that. But don't toot your own horn, he says. That, that expression you've heard, this is where it come from. They had these silver trumpets, and when they were ready to give their offering, they would come out and blow their trumpets really loudly so that those that were in need knew, and that's what they said, right? This is so those that are in the community that are in need know to come and get their offering. But they did it in the marketplace, right, in the middle of the day, and not only would those who had their need, everybody would come out of their shops, and the, the people would come out of their homes and stand and say, look at the spiritual Pharisees, how benevolent they are. They're giving all their gifts. They love to do that. And they would wait, we find in writings around that time, they would wait until the crowd had gathered to watch. They were playing to the crowd. They, they ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, it's time to give some money. Um, wow, that sounds almost unbelievable. It's hard for us to imagine anything like that happening today, isn't it? If I had my phone on me, I would do this and say, I'm about to bless somebody. And I just thought you all wanted to see this. Okay? Be careful with your trumpet. Be careful publishing your works and living for the likes and the shares and the applause of men. And for those of you that aren't on social media and say, I don't struggle with that this morning. I'm not on social media. Be careful the way you tell your story. You are not the main attraction if you belong to Jesus. Be careful tooting your own horn. Call it a humble brag. Hashtag it any way you want to, but when you crave the attention and the applause of others that you do for the less fortunate, Jesus is calling you out this morning and saying, stop it. Stop that. For those who seek the praise of men, Jesus says they have their reward you see that? They have. That word there for have, it's an interesting word. It's the word apecho, and it means basically, it's a commercial word for transactions. It means the bill is paid in full. Watch this. And here's the receipt. We're done. You get no eternal reward when you live for the applause of others. You don't have to publish everything all the time. When you see a need, try to meet it. But meet it like Barnabas did in Acts chapter number four. You see, as the church at Jerusalem is forming, Barnabas participated like all the rest of them. They were selling property and bringing it to give it an offering. They were selling the property. Can you imagine that? We've got extra property. We're gonna sell it. We're gonna bring the, all of the money from the sale to the church, and we're going to bring it to the altar so that it can be used to meet the needs of the family of God. Wow. Barnabas just went and did it. No hoopla. Ananias and Sapphira in chapter five hear about it and they're like, ooh, let's get in that line. So they go sell their property and I know none of you would ever struggle with this, but they go and, and want to do something right. I think their motivation initially was right. Here's what I think happened. This is maybe may a little extra biblical. This is just an opinion, okay? Here's what I think happened. I think they sold it and they got more money than they were thinking they were gonna get. Right, they're like, ooh, that's a lot of money to give the church. I don't know if we can trust them to spend all this money. But we sold the property, we were going to, so we need to get in the line of the people who sold the property. Let's get in the line of people who sold the property, but let's put this back and let this money work for us. And let's just, we'll give the Lord some. It's still a lot. Hey, it's more than they had, what they begin reasoning, right? It's more than they had. A little bit's better than nothing. But they got in the line of the folks who said they had given all the property, bring it up, and that day their life was required up. You, you can't lie to God and get by with it. Now, you may think you're getting by with it, but you won't. That day 
That kind of hypocrisy will cost you everything. What you give to God matters. Be like Barnabas. Just do it. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. Lie about doing it and pretend you've done something you haven't done for the right reason. What you give matters to God, and the way you give matters to God. What you give to the poor matters to God. We ought to be satisfied that the hungry are fed, the naked are clothed, the sick get the help and the healing that they need, the oppressed are freed, and the lost are saved. That ought to be reward enough for us. And then the icing on the cake would be when somebody says, why would you do this? And we say, because I've freely received from the creator of the universe. I was in desperate need, and he met my greatest need. I was a sinner in rebellion against a holy God, but God so loved me like he loves you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, my sin separated me from God. I was a sinner by birth. I was a sinner by choice. I couldn't get it right. My best attempts didn't even measure as righteousness, but God sent his son and lived a perfect life. He knew no sin, neither was there any guile in his mouth. And yet he became sin on a criminal's cross for me that I might become the righteousness of God. I'm giving freely because I've received freely today. Do you know him? Oh, there's a reward, an eternal reward. That's better than a like or share. What we give matters, but give without getting noticed. The second thing he brings attention to is prayer. Pray without playing to the crowd. Pray without praying, without playing to the crowd. Jesus says, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be, there it is, seen of others. He's calling us to pray privately, let me just give you a side note here because we're the gathered church and I've prayed publicly a couple times now. And you're like, Pastor, um, are you in violation of the text? Um, he's not speaking against prayer that is offered uh, in a corporate setting here because Jesus did that. Walk with me to Lazarus. A famous text and, and uh, Brother Flip Benham is here this morning. I didn't know he would be here today but I was mindful of this. One of the first times I was ever with Flip at an abortion mill in town, we were there, and I didn't know, listen, I was so new to the, I didn't even know what I didn't know. That's how new I was, right? Fortunately, God put me with men that knew the word of God, and they were kind and pointed me in the truth. And Flip comes to me, pulls me aside, because the press was there, and some haters were there. Imagine that, folks hating people, standing for life. And, uh, and, and he pulls me to the side, and he says, okay, okay, Christian, Christian, why are you out here praying in front of people? The Bible says you ought to pray in your closet. You don't have to pray out here to be heard. Why are you out here praying in front of people? He said, they're gonna scream that to you in just a minute. What are you gonna say? What's the word say? How, what scripture you got to come against that? Well, I wanted to say something like, well, Brother Flip, you know, the Bible says, and what I said was, uh -huh. <laughs> what do I say, Flip? Tell me what to say. And Flip, as he's prone to do, where that Bible flips in, shows me the text, shows Jesus going to the tomb of Lazarus and basically saying, I'm not pray praying out here in front of everybody so you can hear me, Father. I'm praying that they might know that you are God. So there are times that we pray publicly, corporately, instructively to accomplish the will and the work of God. That's not what Jesus is addressing here. What he's saying is, if when you pray, you're praying to impress those that are listening even if you're doing it corporately, you've got a problem.
talk to me. Now, I'm not going to handle much more of that this morning. I covered that in a sermon, How Not to Pray, in 2019. Go back online and listen to that. Let me bring out a couple of pointers here that I think nuance this morning. Praying like a Pharisee, as Jesus describes, is motivated by vanity and is rewarded by men. If your motivation is vanity, your reward is by the applause that you get. But praying like Christ instructs us to pray is motivated by humility, the tax collector, woe, have mercy on me, and rewarded by God. Just quick question here. Whose attention would you rather have? Heaven's or this earth that's fleeting and passing away? Here's some questions to help you evaluate those of you that pray if you're praying for attention. Do you pray longer when somebody's listening than you pray privately? Do you pray differently when somebody's listening? On purpose, with words that you don't normally thou, thee, thou, use, thy. Because somebody's listening. Watch that. The hypocrite lives for the approval of others. The disciple lives for the approval of heaven. Lastly this morning, fast without all the fanfare. Fast without all the fanfare. Jesus is warning of these three specific areas of hypocrisy. He's calling us to fast without all the fanfare. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have, there it is, they've got their receipt paid in full. Fasting is one of those spiritual disciplines that we seldom talk about and actually practice even less as evangelicals today in America. Let me give you a quick definition of fasting. It's abstaining from eating, drinking, or even intimacy between a husband and wife for the purpose of prayer, spiritual devotion, mourning, grief, and or repentance. It was practiced in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and before you pull me aside and say, wait, uh, Jesus said you didn't have to fast when the bridegroom was here, right? They said, why are, why are your disciples not fasting, Jesus? He says, because I'm here with them, right? Well, they, the church fasted later when Jesus ascended to heaven, so we have permission. If you were waiting on permission, you have permission to fast as a church body. We call you to do that on our missions Mondays, which we'll do next Monday as a church, but when we focus our time on praying for one of our missionaries, we ask you to fast and pray. Maybe that's a meal. Maybe it's half a day. Maybe it's all day if you're able to. But we want you to say no to the flesh and yes to the Lord. Fasting is important. There are some of our denominational brothers and sisters who are well-practiced and committed in this discipline and put us to shame, I think. And they're closer to God for it, I believe, in some areas of their life. You want to draw close to God? Say no to the flesh. But... As with any spiritual discipline, we can distort it into something else. Jesus warns us of those who fast to make a show for an audience. He reminds us that just like our giving and our praying, when we perform for other people, 
then we get a receipt that says paid in full. Let me ask you a question. If you seriously needed to fast for something, you're like, God, I've done all the praying I know to do. I've gotten the prayer team together. They're praying. I've read your word. I'm at my wit's end. I haven't tried fasting. I'm going to try to fast for this. Lord, I'm going all in for this need. I really need you to meet this need, whether it's a wayward child or a lost loved one or an opportunity for you to share the gospel where the door's been closed and you're praying for an open door and you're going all in for that do you really want to settle for just the applause of mankind when you need God to move on your behalf I don't that's a trade-off that is not worth it his instruction is so practical here I love Jesus when he teaches this way he's saying act normal take care of yourself don't make a big show about this don't look worse I don't look worse than you already do right right don't try to go out of your way like What's going on? Oh, nothing. I can't tell you that I'm fasting. <laughs> I'm happy in the Lord. Don't put on this big show. You know why? Because you just might get that Academy Award for acting. That's not what we're after. He's concerned with our hearts. Adrian Rogers had such a great way of saying something in a short passage I love this he says if the devil cannot keep you from doing a right thing he'll get you to do a right thing the wrong way I struggle with this at times being in the public spotlight you struggle if you're honest with this at times in some area so what's the big deal does it really matter pastor are you telling me that if you had a church full of praying, giving, and fasting people, that you're really concerned if their heart's all in? I mean, that's the envy of all the pastors in Charlotte. I don't know whose voice I'm doing, but that's the envy of all the pastors in Charlotte, right? Maybe. I don't know. I'm saying this. I want what Jesus wants for my life. I want what Jesus wants for your life. And he's after more than just your religious activity. He wants it all. He didn't ask to be your co-pilot. You need to give him the keys and you ask him to lock you in the trunk. He's in charge. Hypocrisy can wreck you. Here's some things I think hypocrisy can do very well. It can deceive you into thinking that everything's okay. Deceive you into thinking you're actually doing some good and you're heaven's impressed with your activities. It can deceive you into thinking you're actually right with God when you're only putting on a show. Hypocrisy can defraud you of a greater reward when you settle for something less and it can destroy your testimony. Now I'm limiting this to these three areas that Jesus did with the text. I'm limited to the text this morning but I want you to know that hypocrisy can make you a liability to the church, a liability to a gospel witness and you can be a real hindrance to kingdom work getting done. Your sin can affect the rest of us. I'm keenly aware this morning that there are posers, fakers, pretenders on pews and online. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we will come to a passage later that takes hypocrisy to a whole new level. Where they're so deceived they actually think they've earned their way into heaven. Do you see why Jesus says, look, 
Don't even go down this path. Don't pretend when you're giving that you're doing this for God when you're just doing it to be seen. Don't pretend when you're praying that you're trying to get heaven's attention when you're just doing this to impress your friends. Don't put on a show of fasting when I want all of your life. I've got good news for the posers, fakers, and pretenders this morning and the rest of us. Jesus loves sinners. And he will cleanse and forgive to the uttermost. He's calling you to stop, to beware, to be an authentic Christian. Julia's gonna come now and just give us a moment to reflect on the text before I transition us to communion this morning. Jesus died for your sins, for my sins. He died for our feeble attempts at putting on this persona that impresses the religious crowd. He didn't come to make us better at religious things. He came to make us new. To the sinner who doesn't know him as Lord and Savior this morning, call on Jesus today. You've heard the gospel. As many as call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Repent of your sins. Put your faith and trust in him. You know what? How do you know God's working in your life? We used to say if you're gripping the pews so tight that you, we could put sawdust. If I could put sawdust down and a hose in to get y'all to pray and get you baptized, come on. It's not the outward act. It's this inward thing that happens where the Holy Spirit's doing it. Trust me, if you are drawn to repent of your sin, the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and life. That's not a natural thing to want to do. We love our sin. But if you're starting to see God as holier than you imagine and yourself as more sinful than you've cared to admit and seeing Christ as the only hope you have to reconcile the two, God's at work. Come to Jesus today. Pray. I'm here. You want to pray with me? I'll pray with you. You want to pray with an elder? We'll pray with you. We'll stay as long as we need to to pray. But don't miss this opportunity. To the brother or sister who's struggling to choose the right audience this morning, I've come with a word of encouragement and caution. Choose your audience carefully. Don't shortchange your worship. Let's pray. Because Jesus loved us, because our great God and King has settled the rescue operation of all the ages, God's plan of redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ lived a sinless, spotless, righteous life. He didn't have to fake anything. He was the real deal. The perfect, sinless Son of God perfectly met all of the requirements of God's law. He went to a cross, and there he was lifted up to die. On that cross, your sins my sins and everyone who would believe in him were laid on him and he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We so often sanitize the actual death of Christ on the cross. We don't think about his hands tearing and bleeding as nails ripped into them. We don't think about his nailed together feet supporting the weight of his body. 
We somehow gloss over the spear piercing and entering his side or the thorns crushing his forehead or the agony as he struggled for each shallow breath to continue to live. We don't often think about the fact that he was also God and could have stopped it all. But his father had said this was the way. And as truly God and truly man, he suffered, he bled, and he died. He obeyed. The great exchange of the cross was the worst about us laid upon him and the best about him was laid upon us. By that death, he satisfied the righteous anger of God and appeased his wrath toward all who would believe in him. He completed the mission of salvation. The Bible teaches us that he had come into the world to accomplish. He was buried in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and on the third day raised from the dead. And now he sits on the throne ever interceding for us. And so we come because of that finished work And this God that loved us that much together to the table this morning to worship him with this beautiful memorial act of obedience and communion. Take the elements that you have there and as you're preparing those, pull that top layer back and you'll get to the wafer. If you don't have a communion element this morning and and need one, if you'll just raise your hand, we'll get you one. I think Everybody usually gets pretty well set. They do such a great job of that coming in. Paul was teaching in the New Testament in Corinthians 